20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne Part 1 Chapter 1 A Shifting Reef The year 1866 was signalized by a remarkable incident, a mysterious and puzzling phenomenon which, doubtless, no one has yet forgotten, not to mention rumors which agitated the maritime population and excited the public mind, even in the interior of continents. Seafaring men were particularly excited. Merchants, common sailors, captains of vessels, skippers, both of Europe and America, naval officers of all countries, and the governments of several states on the two continents were deeply interested in the matter. For some time past, vessels had been met by an enormous thing, a long object, spindle-shaped, occasionally phosphorescent, and infinitely larger and more rapid in its movements than a whale. The facts relating to this apparition, entered in various log-books, agreed in most respects as to the shape of the object or creature in question, the untiring rapidity of its movements, its surprising power of locomotion, and the peculiar life with which it seemed endowed. If it was a whale, it surpassed in size all those hitherto classified in science. Taking into consideration the mean of observations made at divers times, rejecting the timid estimate of those who assigned to this object a length of two hundred feet, equally with the exaggerated opinions which set it down as a mile in width and three in length, we might fairly conclude that this mysterious being surpassed greatly all dimensions admitted by the learned ones of the day, if it existed at all. And that it did exist was an undeniable fact. And, with that tendency which disposes the human mind in favor of the marvelous, we can understand the excitement produced in the entire world by this supernatural apparition. As to classing it in the list of fables, the idea was out of the question. On the 20th of July, 1866, the steamer, Governor Higginson, of the Calcutta and Burnock Steam Navigation Company, had met this moving mass five miles off the east coast of Australia. Captain Baker thought at first that he was in the presence of an unknown sandbank, even prepared to determine its exact position, when two columns of water, projected by the mysterious object, shot with a hissing noise a hundred and fifty feet up into the air. Now, unless the sandbank had been submitted to the intermittent eruption of a geyser, the Governor Higginson had to do neither more nor less than with an aquatic mammal, unknown till then, which threw up from its blowholes columns of water mixed with air and vapor. Similar facts were observed on the 23rd of July in the same year in the Pacific Ocean by the Columbus of the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. But this extraordinary creature could transport itself from one place to another with surprising velocity, as, in an interval of three days, the Governor Higginson and the Columbus had observed it at two different points of the chart, 
separated by a distance of more than 700 nautical leagues. Fifteen days later, 2,000 miles farther off, the Helvetia of the Compagnie Nationale and the Shannon of the Royal Mail Steamship Company, sailing to windward in that portion of the Atlantic lying between the United States and Europe, respectively signaled the monster to each other in 42.15 north latitude and 60.35 west longitude. In these simultaneous observations, they thought themselves justified in estimating the minimum length of the mammal at more than 350 feet, as the Shannon and Helvetia were of smaller dimensions than it, though they measured 300 feet overall. Now, the largest whales, those which frequent those parts of the sea round the Aleutian, Kalamak, and Omgolich islands, have never exceeded the length of 60 yards, if they attain that. In every place of great resort, the monster was the fashion. They sang of it in the cafes, ridiculed it in the papers, and represented it on the stage. All kinds of stories were circulated regarding it, there appeared in the papers caricatures of every gigantic and imaginary creature, from the white whale, the terrible Moby Dick of subarctic regions, to the immense kraken, whose tentacles could entangle a ship of five hundred tons and hurry it into the abyss of the ocean. The legends of ancient times were even revived. Then burst forth the unending argument between the believers and the unbelievers in the societies of the wise and the scientific journals. The question of the monster inflamed all minds. Editors of scientific journals quarreling with believers in the supernatural spilled seas of ink during this memorable campaign, some even drawing blood. For from the sea serpent they came to direct personalities— during the first months of the year 1867, the question seemed buried, never to revive, when new facts were brought before the public. It was then no longer a scientific problem to be solved, but a real danger seriously to be avoided. The question took quite another shape. The monster became a small island, a rock, a reef, but a reef of indefinite and shifting proportions. On the 5th of March, 1867, the Moravian of the Montreal Ocean Company, finding herself during the night in 27.30 latitude and 72.15 longitude, struck on her starboard quarter a rock, marked in no chart for that part of the sea. Under the combined efforts of the wind and its 400 horsepower, it was going at the rate of 13 knots. Had it not been for the superior strength of the hull of the Moravian, she would have been broken by the shock and gone down with the 237 passengers she was bringing home from Canada. The accident happened about five o'clock in the morning as the day was breaking. The officers of the quarterdeck hurried to the after part of the vessel. They examined the sea with the most careful attention they saw nothing but a strong eddy about three cables' length distant, as if the surface had been violently agitated. The bearings of the place were taken exactly, and the Moravian continued its route without apparent damage. Had it struck on a submerged rock or on an enormous wreck? 
they could not tell. But on examination of the ship's bottom, when undergoing repairs, it was found that part of her keel was broken. This fact, so grave in itself, might perhaps have been forgotten like many others, if, three weeks after, it had not been reenacted under similar circumstances. But thanks to the nationality of the victim of the shock, thanks to the reputation of the company to which the vessel belonged, the circumstance became extensively circulated. The 13th of April, 1867, the sea being beautiful, the breeze favorable, the Scotia of the Cunard Company's line found herself in 1512 longitude and 4537 latitude. She was going at the speed of 13 knots and a half. At 17 minutes past four in the afternoon, while the passengers were assembled at lunch in the great saloon, a slight shock was felt on the hull of the Scotia, on her quarter, a little aft of the port paddle. The Scotia had not struck, but she had been struck, and seemingly by something rather sharp and penetrating than blunt. The shock had been so slight that no one had been alarmed, had it not been for the shouts of the carpenter's watch, who rushed onto the bridge exclaiming, We are sinking, we are sinking. At first the passengers were much frightened, but Captain Anderson hastened to reassure them. The danger could not be imminent. The Scotia, divided into seven compartments by strong partitions, could brave with impunity any leak. Captain Anderson went down immediately into the hold. He found that the sea was pouring into the fifth compartment, and the rapidity of the influx proved that the force of the water was considerable. Fortunately, this compartment did not hold the boilers, or the fires would have been immediately extinguished. Captain Anderson ordered the engines to be stopped at once, and one of the men went down to ascertain the extent of the injury. Some minutes afterwards, they discovered the existence of a large hole, two yards in diameter, in the ship's bottom. Such a leak could not be stopped, and the Scotia, her paddles half submerged, was obliged to continue her course. She was then three hundred miles from Cape Clear, and after three days' delay, which caused great uneasiness, in Liverpool, she entered the basin of the company. The engineers visited the Scotia, which was put in dry dock. They could scarcely believe it possible. At two yards and a half below watermark was a regular rent, in the form of an isosceles triangle. The broken place in the iron plates was so perfectly defined that it could not have been more neatly done by a punch. It was clear, then, that the instrument producing the perforation was not of a common stamp, and, after having been driven with prodigious strength and piercing an iron plate one and three-eighth inches thick, had withdrawn itself by a backward motion. Such was the last fact which resulted in exciting once more the torrent of public opinion. From this moment all unlucky casualties which could not be otherwise accounted for were put down to the monster. Upon this imaginary creature rested the responsibility of all these shipwrecks, which unfortunately were considerable. For of three thousand ships whose loss was annually recorded at Lloyd's, 
the number of sailing in steamships, supposed to be totally lost, from the absence of all news, amounted to not less than two hundred. Now it was the monster who, justly or unjustly, was accused of their disappearance. And thanks to it, communication between the different continents became more and more dangerous. The public demanded sharply that the seas should at any price be relieved from this formidable cetacean. Chapter 2. Pro and Con. At the period when these events took place, I had just returned from a scientific research in the disagreeable territory of Nebraska in the United States. In virtue of my office as assistant professor in the Museum of Natural History in Paris, the French government had attached me to that expedition. After six months in Nebraska, I arrived in New York towards the end of March, laden with a precious collection. My departure for France was fixed for the first days in May. Meanwhile, I was occupying myself in classifying my mineralogical, botanical, and zoological riches when the accident happened to the Scotia. I was perfectly up in the subject which was the question of the day. How could I be otherwise? I had read and reread all the American and European papers without being any nearer a conclusion. This mystery puzzled me. Under the impossibility of forming an opinion, I jumped from one extreme to the other. That there really was something could not be doubted, and the incredulous were invited to put their finger on the wound of the Scotia. On my arrival at New York, the question was at its height. The theory of the floating island and the unapproachable sandbank, supported by minds little competent to form a judgment, was abandoned. And indeed, unless the shoal had a machine in its stomach, how could it change its position with such astonishing rapidity? From the same cause, the idea of a floating hull of an enormous wreck was given up. There remained, then, only two possible solutions of the question, which created two distinct parties. On one side, those who were for a monster of colossal strength. On the other, those who were for a submarine vessel of enormous motive power. But this last theory, plausible as it was, could not stand against inquiries made in both worlds. That a private gentleman should have such a machine at his command was not likely— where, when, and how was it built, and how could its construction have been kept secret? Certainly a government might possess such a destructive machine, and in these disastrous times when the ingenuity of man has multiplied the power of weapons of war, it was possible that, without the knowledge of others, a state might try to work such a formidable engine. But the idea of a war machine fell before the declaration of governments, as public interest was in question and transatlantic communications suffered, their veracity could not be doubted. But how admit that the construction of this submarine boat had escaped the public eye? For a private gentleman to keep the secret under such circumstances would be very difficult, and for a state whose every act is persistently watched by powerful rivals, certainly impossible. Upon my arrival in New York, several persons did me the honor of consulting me on the phenomenon in question. 
I had published in France a work in two volumes, entitled Mysteries of the Great Submarine Grounds. This book, highly approved of in the learned world, gained for me a special reputation in this rather obscure branch of natural history. My advice was asked. As long as I could deny the reality of the fact, I confined myself to a decided negative. But soon, finding myself driven into a corner, I was obliged to explain myself point by point. I discussed the question in all its forms, politically and scientifically, and I give here an extract from a carefully studied article which I published in the number of the 30th of April. It ran as follows. After examining one by one the different theories, rejecting all other suggestions, it becomes necessary to admit the existence of a marine animal of enormous power. The great depths of the ocean are entirely unknown to us. Soundings cannot reach them. What passes in those remote depths, what beings live or can live, twelve or fifteen miles beneath the surface of the waters, what is the organization of these animals, we can scarcely conjecture. However, the solution of the problem submitted to me may modify the form of the dilemma. Either we do know all the varieties of beings which people our planet, or we do not. If we do not know them all, if nature has still secrets in the deeps for us, nothing is more conformable to reason than to admit the existence of fishes or cetaceans of other kinds, or even of new species, of an organization formed to inhabit the strata inaccessible to soundings, and which an accident of some sort has brought at long intervals to the upper level of the ocean. If, on the contrary, we do know all living kinds, we must necessarily seek for the animal in question amongst those marine beings already classed, and in that case I should be disposed to admit the existence of a gigantic narwhal, the common narwhal, or unicorn of the sea, often attains a length of sixty feet, increase its size fivefold or tenfold, give its strength proportionate to its size, lengthen its destructive weapons, and you obtain the animal required. It will have the proportions determined by the officers of the Shannon, the instrument required by the perforation of the Scotia, and the power necessary to pierce the hull of the steamer. Indeed, the narwhal is armed with a sort of ivory sword, a halberd, according to the expression of certain naturalists. The principal tusk has the hardness of steel. Some of these tusks have been found buried in the bodies of whales, which the unicorn always attacks with success. Others have been drawn out, not without trouble, from the bottoms of ships, which they had pierced through and through, as a gimlet pierces a barrel. The Museum of the Faculty of Medicine of Paris possesses one of these defensive weapons, two yards and a quarter in length, and fifteen inches in diameter at the base. Very well. Suppose this weapon to be six times stronger and the animal ten times more powerful. Launch it at the rate of twenty miles an hour, and you obtain a shock capable of producing the catastrophe required. Until further information, therefore, I shall maintain it to be a sea unicorn of colossal dimensions, armed not with a halberd, but with a real spur, as the armored frigates, or the rams of war, 
whose massiveness and motive power it would possess at the same time. Thus may this puzzling phenomenon be explained, unless there be something over and above all that one has ever conjectured, seen, perceived, or experienced, which is just within the bounds of possibility. These last words were cowardly on my part, but up to a certain point I wished to shelter my dignity as professor and not give too much cause for laughter to the Americans who laugh well when they do laugh. I reserved for myself a way of escape. In effect, however, I admitted the existence of the monster. My article was warmly discussed, which procured it a high reputation. It rallied round it a certain number of partisans. The solution it proposed gave at least full liberty to the imagination. The human mind delights in grand conceptions of supernatural beings. And the sea is precisely their best vehicle, the only medium through which these giants, against which terrestrial animals, such as elephants or rhinoceroses, are as nothing, can be produced or developed. The industrial and commercial papers treated the question chiefly from this point of view. The shipping and mercantile gazette, the Lloyd's List, the packet boat, and the maritime and colonial review, all papers devoted to insurance companies which threatened to raise their rates of premium, were unanimous on this point. Public opinion had been pronounced. The United States were the first in the field, and in New York they made preparations for an expedition destined to pursue this narwhal. A frigate of great speed, the Abraham Lincoln, was put in commission as soon as possible. The arsenals were open to Commander Farragut, who hastened the arming of his frigate. But, as it always happens... The moment it was decided to pursue the monster, the monster did not appear. For two months, no one heard it spoken of. No ship met with it. It seemed as if this unicorn knew of the plots weaving around it. It had been so much talked of, even through the Atlantic cable, that jesters pretended that the slender fly had stopped a telegram on its passage and was making the most of it. So when the frigate had been armed for a long campaign and provided with formidable fishing apparatus, no one could tell what course to pursue. Impatience grew apace. When on the 2nd of July they learned that a steamer of the line of San Francisco from California to Shanghai had seen the animal three weeks before in the North Pacific Ocean. The excitement caused by this news was extreme. The ship was revittled and well-stocked with coal. Three hours before the Abraham Lincoln left Brooklyn Pier, I received a letter worded as follows. To Monsieur Aranax, professor in the Museum of Paris, Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York. Sir, if you will consent to join the Abraham Lincoln in this expedition, the government of the United States will, with pleasure, see France represented in the enterprise. Commander Farragut has a cabin at your disposal. Very cordially yours, J.B. Hobson, Secretary of Marine. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.